Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 142nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that only gives out full candy bars and the sweetest specs. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. Uh, glad to be here and looking forward to another great show. Uh, how have you been, James? Very good, Travis. Busy, busy over here with Halloween and the little one. I bet. Did you guys go trick-or-treating or is she still too young for that? We decided we're going to wait on that till next year. She helped out giving out candy at the grandparents' house so she could get a feel for it. She was uh, a little freaked out by the outfits. And then we whisked ourselves uh, away once she was in bed and went and tested this new board game that I custom designed for our friends for Halloween. Oh, how did that go? Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. The uh, game played pretty well for a first shot. Uh Anything like that where you're building something kind of like out of your own head in a relatively short period of time is uh, it's tricky to, to, to nail. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't uh, your worst fear is always that something like that is just going to collapse in the first 10 minutes. You're going to realize the mechanics don't work, but mm-hmm. uh, it played pretty good. We finished the game. People had fun. A couple of the people at the table wouldn't have had fun no matter how good the game was. So <laughs> <laughs> when you're playing a mixed company, that's always going to be the case, depending on the nature of the game. Yeah, you know, uh, off cast, you mentioned something about all these people and, you know, they're, they're Scattergories players. And I literally received a new copy of Scattergories today. <laughs> in the mail. Uh, it's in seal, sealed on my counter. Uh, but we also play, you know, the other stuff. Uh, Terraforming Mars is probably our favorite game. So, you know, we like both sides of it. It's funny because we, we, we often attempt to bridge the gap in, a, in the, in the, in a way that the our purely social gaming friends that want to play Twister and shit don't really ever try to do. We try to accommodate the social side. So in the design of this game, um, rather than it being pure strategy, part of the mechanics is that you can talk to each other because it's it's supposed to be about this haunted house and you get an invitation and you and seven people you know nothing about have different objectives and you have to get in and out of the house in three hours. The house doors are locked the second you get in there. So you have to get in, complete your objective, and then stay alive for the rest of the the haunted adventure. And so as soon as they walk in, they're allowed to talk to each other. And they had the, I wish I had recorded it. They had the most awkward and bizarre conversations with each other. (laughs) People, you know, like a lot of people just have trouble like role playing and getting into a different mindset, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, those kind of people that are going to be super awkward at a D&D table were also awkward at my table. Well, I would imagine as soon as you introduce hidden roles to... People are like trying to figure out, you know, on the fly what they should say and what they shouldn't say yeah, yeah. type of thing. Yeah. So so like Ellie busts out with, hey, everybody, how are you tonight? And I was like, that was weird for the secret agent to say. I mean, I know she's the secret agent, but that was really weird. And then like the, the thief decided to like stab someone like in the first five seconds just to see how that worked. <laughs> so, so, so then everyone's like, it's the killer run. <laughs> It sounds, it sounds fun. It was amusing. Very fun. Uh, you know, since we're uh, doing board game chat, uh, <clears throat> I will say I played Spyfall for the first time recently. Okay. Uh, and if you've never given that a shot, that's a lot of fun. Uh, 
it combines your the gamers are going to want a game the uh casual players are going to be find it appealing and everyone will have very awkward conversations it's very good at mixing all of those uh but if you like werewolf style games and also feeling like you're very clever uh it was very impressed with spyfall hmm. let's check that out i mean the, the friends that are never going to get into strategy with us uh are very much about werewolf so spyfall might be a thing to try yeah we uh we're gonna add a segment of uh, a board game segment i think to the show we should <laughs> we should we play a lot oh, of board games. you know what we can talk about this later on in the cast our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So what segments do we have today? Uh, this week, we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. James and I will look mm. at uh, cards that have seen the largest increase in price over the past week. Segment two is our cards to watch. Those are cards James and I have our eye on as possible gainers in the future. Segment three, our metagame week in review. Uh, we have the Sarcity Charlotte uh, was modern with uh, a couple Titan decks in the top two there. Um, we also have uh, some standard standard GPs from, uh, what was it, Lille and New Jersey. So maybe we'll touch on those. I don't know yet. Uh, and then finally, segment four, uh, our topic of the week, we're going to talk about collecting things other than magic cards. Um, jumping into other collectible environments, uh, markets, that type of thing. How do they differ? Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll kind of spitball on that one. I think James got more experience with that than I do just from shelf life. But uh, maybe I can be the question asker for all of you out there. So let's get started. Segment one, our top movers. Uh, first car on the list, you've got Carnage Tire on here uh, with probably the smallest percentage I think we've ever seen on the list got 25 to 29 for a whopping 16 percent gain uh may i ask what your what your thinking is here james two things first the theme of this list and it's been true for a couple weeks now is that standard is driving a lot of the finance right now um, mm -hmm. which was not as much the case last fall it indicates a, a resurgent uh interest in the format um I, I, that hasn't been the case since we've started recording the podcast <laughs> Like it was, it used to be true. That's where I cut my teeth. Yeah. But that has fallen, that fell out of favor. Uh, what was it? Probably Collins of Tark here, maybe a little before that is where that really started to fall off. Yeah. So we're, we're going to see this theme play out throughout the list this week. But the other part of this is, um, you know, as a curated list, worth pointing out that at $29 for a mythic that has no lifespan out of standard, get out of this card if you don't need it to play with. Yeah. I was a fan of buying these back when they were, uh, I don't know, I think they were 14 or something when I was talking about them. Um, and they are, you're right now, get 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 out, get out, get out. I don't ever want to hold a $30 standard card. Um, that that I, isn't going to be a big deal in EDH or Modern ever. I, yeah, I can't, <clears throat> I don't know what the factor would have to be for me to recommend buying a $30 standard card, but... Uh, let's suffice to say Carnage Tyrant is not it. The time to buy was before you probably, you could have done very well if, uh, if you bought one, we talked about it in the past, but that ship has long sailed sailed. Yeah. Uh, after that, we have Immortal sun from rivals of Ixalan, a little bigger, 14 to 27. Uh, this is a, uh, a rare, right? No. Yeah. This is the rare one. Um, this is kind of does everything, right? It's like your planeswalkers have an additional loyalty. Your creatures get plus one, plus one. I think it's your spells cost one less two or something. It's kind of touches all those points. Um, 
you know, 14 to 22, it's about a little over 50%. It's seen some standard play, but like not that much. Uh, it's also in about one and a half thousand EDH decks, which is not nothing. Um, Ixalan is fairly new, so that's not a terrible uptake. Uh, but it, we're not talking about a massive, um, a massive reception in that format. So I guess this is might be a little bit of targeted. Um, yeah, what's your take on it? That's what I was arguing with people on Twitter today. Is that <clears throat> somebody said, "Is this just EDH?" And I said. I made some snarky remark about EDH being the most important casual format. But then I took a closer look at it and realized that I was talking a little bit sideways out of my mouth because it's only, you know, 1,500 decks or so on EDH rack, probably less than it should be. I mean, the card is more useful than that in the format. Well, you've um, been getting bitten on that a couple times in the last few weeks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did clarify in a further comment that um, the the movement seems speculative um, based yeah. on the two factors that are actually in play is that there is a uh, smattering of demand uh, across multiple archetypes in standard and the, combined with the fact that Rivals of Ixalan was at a low point for standard, low point interest wise. And so there are not tremendous numbers of copies of this card floating around that were just sitting um, waiting to be snapped up and so when a lot of the cards haven't been buy listed when they've just been sitting in people's binders which is where most of these are and maybe the average person from that era only owns like a copy or so that they may be opened in a box it's not as they don't have a lot of uh motivation to run over to a buy list table and drop it for four dollars or whatever right and so you're gonna see i think this price stabilize and fall um before it might rise again long term bottom line is for this to be over twenty dollars same as with carnage tyrant get out get out get out yeah yeah the price on this is kind of insane right now for what it is and i you know i do like this long term i think it's a good card that will have a lot of uh interest in edh specifically it is a mythic okay um we'll have a lot of interest in edh at some point it's just it's not now right like let it drop again and then come back to it and we can get foils for the same price as non foils in Europe for the same price as non foils here at the moment. So if I really wanted to jump on them for long term EDH play, I would probably just snap up, say, four foils and call it a day on this one. Yeah, I think foils are definitely the way to go because this is definitely this is going to be an EDH card when it does become something down the road. Um, I should double back on the third point I forgot to mention about Carnage Tyrant, which is that it was your pick seven weeks ago where you called it around $16, $17. So okay. winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yeah, you know what I talked about? It. I just don't remember if it was here or in one of the articles. Mm-hmm. Um, so next on the list, we've got uh, Arc-like Phoenix out of Guilds of Ravnica making another move, the non-foils, moving from thirteen fifty to twenty-two. Um, use in both standard and modern decks, um, often as a four of. So uh, that's the formula that takes for a mythic to confidently move over 20 and uh this might actually be a hold if if it posts up in modern as a four of regularly then this is a future 50 or 60 dollar card before it ever sees a reprint i mean it literally is still in print like just saw a print yeah i cannot recommend anything other than sell i really Uh, i'm okay being wrong about that it's just like one of those things where there's so few standard cards that are ever worth considerably more than 30 bucks. Uh, I mean, this is 22 right now. So like, mm, I mean, maybe you hang on if you're really greedy. Uh, but uh, yeah, remember $30 is basically my like, nope, we're done here. Price point. Well, and especially if you were in like 
in at the lows when nobody thought this card was anything like when i first saw this card i was like three spells yeah would a storm deck ever want to run this but there was copies available middle of october for five bucks so if that was your buy-in and you were presciently ahead of the curve then yeah by all means get out near 20 i mean buy list right now on card kingdom is up to a whopping 1885 on credit 1450 cash so if you were in at five you can triple up to cash via an easy buy list out and you're golden interestingly they're actually offering less for foils than (laughs) non-foils which would seem to suggest that they believe more in the standard demand than the modern demand yeah yeah that's very much a a standard thing so you know in general i am of the opinion that uh if you sell any standard card at 30 dollars, you will be right so much more often than you will be wrong that the one time you're wrong you should not feel bad about it sure i mean keep in mind this thing has already top aided minor events in modern so yeah. the it, i'm holding foils that i got in on closer to 15 i think somewhere between 15 and 20 and I'm not in a rush. I, I'm more than happy to see where that where that goes. Yeah. You know, if I had them, I'm not saying I would sell them right away, I guess. And they're not at 30, right? We're talking about them being at 22, 23. So we're not there yet. But that's sort of where I'm for non-foils. That's where I'm checking out. I mean, so, so, compare it to Teferi, right? If Teferi is like a $36 card, is it that good? No. Okay. Move along. So let's talk about the card I sold twice this week. <clears throat> that I didn't have an inventory that you then had to back me up. <laughs> the, the card that I sold twice that I didn't know I was selling. <laughs> yes, that one. Uh, that'd be Life from the Loam. Um, all three editions, we've got Modern Masters, Ravnica, and the dual deck copies. Uh, saw some pretty big jumps this week. We're looking uh, at about a you know 15 to $20 spike on all of them. Roughly a 75-ish price gain across the board. Um, your cheapest copy now is like $28 or something like that. Uh, maybe even 32, 33, depending on where you're looking. I didn't look in the last day or two. So definitely some, some activity there. Uh, you know, dredge has been doing really well in modern. Um, so that's probably where you're getting most of that pressure from. I do think that there was probably a little bit of a, a run or pressure on this, uh, cause supply was, I thought pretty reasonable prior to this. Um, as but at this modern, point, Modern Masters is, is getting pretty old-ish, old-ish. Yeah, and I mean, Ravnica is ages ago. Like, you hear the word Ravnica, and because you're at in a Ravnica set, that doesn't seem like it's old, but that's the first Ravnica block. Yeah. <laughs> that's a long time ago. That's like 15 years or whatever. At least 10 years. So, you know, between that and a dual deck that nobody bought, um, you know, this thing needs a reprint. I'd be stunned if we didn't get a modern focused reprints set in 2019, as I've been saying. And this looks like a very likely candidate to be included at, at rare because rares that, that are currently 30 or 40 are the sweet spot for those sets um, mm-hmm. to be in their like top six to eight cards that justify the set price. <clears throat> yeah. Well, don't forget it's not a modern themed. It's not modern themed anymore. Remember that's pe- people have been <laughs> hanging on that one comment for wizards for far too long. There's no way we're not getting a set with a bunch of modern cards in it this year. Right. So I don't care if they call it like fancy pants masters. 
we are getting a master set this year. There's just no way that's not happening. There are way too many cards, 20, 30, 40 cards in need of a reprint in that format that are like double what their price will be after they see that re- reprint at rare. We- and it's time. And I would get, I my, my money is on them in the next six months. <clears throat> well, uh, at least I would, the first six months of 2019. I would say, when you say this year, you mean 2019, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, I think Life in the Loam is very likely to get reprinted. But um, if you're holding some copies right now, you can start selling into uh, the dearth of supply and hope that you bleed out before anything gets announced. If you're holding right now, you can sell out to your co-host. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can force your co-host to sell yeah. for less than market. I did find uh, a place my favorite finds in my binder, though. So, oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Um. All right. After that, uh, missed cloaked herald from M nineteen two to four dollars a double up, uh, a crummy double up, but a double up nonetheless. Uh, what card is this? Miss cloaked herald. This is the uh, the merfolk that's uh, played in the blue aggro decks and standard, right? Uh, okay, yeah, it's one mana, one, one, can't be blocked. Oh, is this the one? No, this was in both of them. Is this a foil? Uh, yes. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay. I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. this is two to $4. I don't think a common went two to four, but the foil, sure. Okay, so foil, Miss Cloak Herald's two to $4, which uh, I've seen a good amount of play um, in standard right now, so... I don't know. That's that's just somebody picking up a couple. I don't think that's really meaningful, right? Like, Jim. sorry, no, it it wasn't the foils. It's the non foils. What? Yep, non foils. And, and the thing is that 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 card is actually not only from M nineteen. It was also in Rivals of Ixalan. It got reprinted in its first year. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. How is? Well, if you if you if you don't like that common. <laughs> uh wait okay. till you get to the wait. top the top two things on this list here we go here we go okay that this is what it was this is kind of what i thought it was at first this is the m19 version but it was only in one of those like m19 like promo oh, welcome decks. decks yeah that's what yes it right so it's so it's actually a rivals of Ixalan card then which is currently 30 cents 50 cents and there are a zillion copies so this is just sure. the m19 version being weird because there's like 30 of them yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. Glad we figured that so out. So ignore that one. I'm going to leave that on air just so that people can hear us talk through it. Sure. Figure it out. As next on the list, Azora's Gateway from Rivals of Ixalan. Are we seeing a theme with <laughs> Ixalan cards? Um, moving from $5 to $10 because it is suddenly in uh, demand as a four of in the Jeskai Standard Control, which won the GP uh, GP New Jersey this weekend. Yeah, when the hands of Eli Cassis, his first time hoisting a trophy, he's been uh, a long time pro tour end boss around here in my area, probably up in your area too. I'm sure he's played in his fair share of Toronto uh, PTQs. Yeah, I've seen the name around. Uh, fun fact, well, not fun for him. Uh, Eli Cassis had a backpack stolen out of his car a couple of years ago uh, to the tune of like nearly $100,000. Oh, yeah. that stinks. Yeah, it was pretty rough. All right, so next on the list? Uh, next on the list is Banefire, uh, the Duels of the Planeswalkers copies. Uh, but, you know, it's not just that one, right? Like, we've had a couple of them um, have done pretty well. Uh, I actually buy-listed all of mine. Uh, I found five of them. 
So big money for me. Uh, You're a step ahead of me. <laughs> I only had four or five of them, but certainly uh, works out well if you have them. I've got, I got like 250 in store credit for them. So, you know, 11 bucks for a card that I figured was kindling. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice to get, get rid of your copies. I really need to do that later tonight. Um, all right. So then we have Takatli Honor Guard out of Ixalan, moving from 65 cents to 225. This is the kind of movement that is not going to make any of us any money. Um, but uh, you might be able to drop, if you had a pile of these sitting around, you might be able to draw, and you're heading to a GP or a major Star City event shortly for standard, you might be able to drop these on a vendor and pick up a few bucks because it's the kind of card that they may not have much of in stock. Um, but it is relevant because it shuts down the black green uh, uh, mid-range decks that we're using all the comes into play abilities. Um, because it it reads that those abilities do nothing when they come into play, and it's a one three for two, and so a lot of the different decks that are that use white have been using this card to, um, you know, basically make the meta turn the corner, and that's how we end up in this position where Jeskai controls now looking like it's at the top of the standard meta. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the foils also moved on these. Um, the foils could moved enough that you if you had a couple sitting around you probably do you want to buy list those or or trade them uh, at your local store um, and final card on the list is in the very similar boat dive down from ixalan moving from 30 cents to five dollars uh, in theory and i think this that one is the foil if i'm not mistaken uh, yes the dive down foils got to five dollars and that's because it's seeing four of usage and standard um, if you can get like three or four dollars on these foils get out yeah. get out pardon me yeah uh anytime you've got foil utility cards like that in standard i'm also happy to sell those uh they're usually reasonably liquid but their their lifespans are short um and you know there's generally a pretty hard ceiling on them so uh, be happy you can get what you can and sort of move on with your life all right, so let's talk about our cards yeah. to watch. Uh, why don't you kick us off? All right, so my first pick this week is Azusa Lost But Seeking, foils from M25. Dipping my toes in the waters of the much maligned master sets from last year, trying to look for some deals. Um, Azusa Lost But Seeking was in, I believe, eight, had seven copies in the top eight of the SCG Modern event last weekend, which was SCG Charlotte with several hundred players. Um, in a field where, uh, well, we'll go through the, the rest of the meta in a bit, but the, my point is that the ladder on these foils is looking pretty steep. There's also a judge foil that's somewhere in the 30 to $40 range, depending on where you're looking at pricing. And I think both of those are likely to climb. Given that it was just reprinted last year, you probably get another two, three, four years before this card ever sees another reprint. And I suspect the foils will get to 40 in the interim. Keep in mind that not only does this show up in modern um, as like a tier two kind of persistent uh, player, usually as a three or a four of, but it's also in 7,000 decks on EDH rec and is very unlikely to ever be in less um, or to be less useful given... um, how great ramp is in that yeah, format. They would have to ban green before Azusa wasn't useful uh, to get Azusa to the point where it's not useful anymore. Um, I was actually just looking at this card last week, I think, uh, for the Watchtower, and I didn't write about it, but it was on my short list of cards to return to um, in the near future. I think you're, you're probably about a week ahead of where I would have been. 
the supply, the, the foil supply is not terribly deep. Um, it's a really powerful card. It has been useful basically since EDH was introduced. Um, it's, and the price didn't, the price dropped when it was printed, but like not that much. And it has been pretty sticky. So there's some very clear demand for this card uh, as it is. Yeah, and there's there's only like a handful of judge foils under forty, and then they're looking like they're going to post up in the forty to sixty dollar range. And because the M twenty five foils have the set symbol in the background, um, I think that players are likely to prefer them. Like the the M twenty five foils look pretty nice, um, and you know that that set as a whole was not tremendously well received, which leads me to believe that the the supply is not going to be super deep on the stuff that actually does uh, get into position to hit a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's the same thing we're seeing with the Ixalan cards and standard is that any set that doesn't sell well, conspiracy, Ixalan, M25, etc., um, is, you know, that much closer to making you money. If you can pick out the diamonds in the rough. Right. And, uh, you know, the Ravnica foils at this point are so old that it's going to be near impossible to find a really good condition one. And even if you do, there's going to be such a price premium on it. People are definitely going to be flocking to the M25, copies when they want a foil yeah you mean the champions of kamigawa version. oh yes i'm sorry which are which are minimum 70 dollars. there's hardly any of them around and they range from 70 to 100 on tcg player yeah so i mean that's not realistically going to be an option for most people looking to pick this up uh so it's not even like you can really point to that and go well here's this other set that's available in foil as like additional supply it's like that doesn't even really count but it's, i mean it's essentially a different price bracket uh it's almost like a different card yeah, we're not too far away from Black Friday now. Um, so if some sweet Black Friday coupons are coming down the pipe, these are the kinds of things you kind of want to have on deck where you might be able to knock another 10, 15, 20% off um, depending on where you're doing your shopping. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I like, to, you know, if you're getting that type of discount, getting it on a $1.50 card doesn't really matter. Uh, getting it on a couple cards in this price range, you know, it starts to really pull its weight. Um, okay, so my first card this week, uh, nothing too terribly exciting, uh, but I think it's not a bad choice. Uh, Fidian Eye out of Time Spiral. This is the three mana aura that gives your creature um, a Fidian, essentially, which is when it deals damage to a player, you get to draw a card. Uh, hardly a, a fact that would be we're not rushing to pay for three mana for creature enchantments too often these days, but it was only ever printed in time spiral. So supply is very low. Um, and it's great in, uh, the new new visit deck, which has been pretty popular lately. Uh, in fact, it is the fourth most popular this month at about, about 110 copies. Um, Muldratha for the re- for reference is the most popular deck of the month at 150. So pretty close. Um, a lot of people are building the Mizzet right now. And what I like about this at the moment is that it hasn't been terribly popular in the past, Ophidian Eye, but suddenly people have a reason to use it. And when you have a card that's got already fairly low supply just because of how old it is, and then you give players a sudden reason to own it, that's where you can see some real juicy price spikes. Uh, we saw that with Cragwick Cremator, the four mana creature from that new modern deck where you put him in the play and discard the 16-16 worm type of thing. Um, yeah. 
exact same type of, of equation. So you can still find a couple foil of eyes in the five to six dollar range. It's not going to be easy, but they are out there. If you've got some lesser trafficked channels, you might be able to get lucky. Uh, and then once you sell out, you know, I think you're looking at probably 12 to $15. Um, there's just not going to be very many back on the market. It's, there was very few to begin with. And all these players are picking up new Mizzet and it is a great card in that deck. Because it's a common that I can buy for 20 cents, it doesn't really command my attention, but the buy list is at the same price as the card. 20 bucks, 20 cents or 20. Oh, for the um, non-foils the non-foils. Yeah, so I mean, you can buy you can buy foil non foil copies for twenty cents around the internet. You can dump them to a buy list later if you want to for at least twenty cents. And odds are that that buy list is going to go up, not down, if your th- your thesis for commander play is true and it doesn't get a reprint. If it gets a reprint as a common and a master set next year, you're wrecked. You're wrecked. Um, yeah. And if you're going in on the foils and track like scooping up the last couple of copies on the internet, you're really looking to only have a couple of copies right like this is the kind of thing where i would be happy if i was going through binders at a shop or whatever and had this top of my mind sure i'll grab the the two or three four dollar copies i find in some binder and then throw them up on on ebay and and hope that they sell for double that and not really think too much of it not the kind of card you want to be trying to go super deep on or like selling a dual land to go buy 10 copies of no no and that's a good point and uh that we should stress is i'm talking about owning like two to four copies uh, you don't want to own a ton of them because then you're trying to sell 15 foil fitting eyes and there just are not going to be the demand for that many or uh, well, there will be, it's just going to take time to sell through them. So don't go hyper deep, but I do think that you probably won't go wrong picking these up without a reprint. So the most important point is probably if you want these for commander, <laughs> hurry your ass up before somebody else scoops it. Yeah, that's for sure. Other than that, you're waiting for, for the reprint, essentially. For reprint land. All right, so my next pick is uh, similar to uh, Azusa in terms of its ramping potential. Um, another ramping all-star, um, you know, probably one of the top five ramp cards of all time in Magic. Primeval Titan was reprinted in uh, Iconic Masters uh, this time last year. And foils are available for a measly $10, which is nothing for a foil mythic. Um, is it mythic in IM? Yeah, isn't it? I, I'm not saying it isn't. It wasn't. I just don't remember. Yeah, it is. It is mythic, and I am. Yeah, that's a joke. Ten, ten dollar foil mythic uh, is totally silly, given that there was twelve copies across two different archetypes in the top eight of SCG Charlotte this weekend. Bloomless Titan was first and second, and Valakut was in fourth, and they were all running the full four contingent of Titan. So Titan is not dead in modern by any means. It is banned in EH, so that's worth considering that you don't have that fallback position. Um, but Again, uh, these maligned master sets do have a couple of jewels, um, and the ramp on this card is steep enough that I can easily see these $10 copies turning into $25 copies, and that will be long before you see a reprint. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, so I, I look at Primeval Titan probably once every two or three months. I will pull the card up and take a peek at it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm totally on board with the it's going to be a while before we see a reprint because they seem to keep pulling the trigger. on it's, They're not keep pulling the trigger on it, but like they haven't hesitated to pull the trigger on it, it would seem. Um, but there are quite a few out there now and they might feel like it's finally time to take a break. Right. We did get it in Modern Masters 2015, which is the second Modern Masters. And then, you know, they waited. What was that? Three years. And then they fired it off again. And it turned our iconic Masters. 
Um, so now they might be like, okay, we got it out there. We used it. We're going to give it a break for a while, um, which would then give you a lot of room to grow on this. Uh, you know, you've got you've got four, technically five foil printings of the Grand Prix promos plus every other printing has a foil but if supply is low across the board it doesn't really matter um you know those additional printings only matter in so much as that is additional supply you have to be worried about but you know if there's five or six for each different edition then okay so there's still only 30 foils on the market uh primeval titan continues to be good and modern they keep printing good lands uh they've already remade primeval titan in sylvian primordial and that was way worse and got banned in edh too so i don't really see them one upping primeval titan anytime soon um and this card by the way would be insane if they ever did something dumb like unban dark depths in modern uh (laughs) or or you know or if they introduce a new format that primeval titan is legal in and, you know, suddenly he's very good there because that slows down a little bit and you can get some particular two utility lands, whatever. In general, I really like the card. And the only reason I haven't personally talked about it before is I was a little scared off by what I perceived as the supply. But if, you know, I haven't looked in a little while and if supply is that low, you know, if we're finally at that point, then I, I'm on board because I've, I've wanted to talk about this card in the past. Yeah, so it's 2011-2012, the GP promo. Uh Modern Masters 2015, and then IMA. So the GP promo only has like less than 10 copies posted on TCG Player. The 2011 and 2012 are are pretty low. Um, 2011 especially, that's the original printing. Um, And they are from seven and eight years ago, respectively. Um, The Modern Masters 2015 foils are known for chipping, right? Like those, that was the stupid cardboard booster packs. Uh, Um, yes. Was that the card or was that the third Modern Masters? No, no, no. That was, no, it was the second one that had the cardboard booster packs. Um, the MM3 packs were the ones with Noble Hierarch on the front, right? Uh, sorry, not Noble Hierarch, not Noble Hierarch. Uh, Liliana? Yeah. I will take your word for it. I don't remember. No, 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 no. Snapper, Snapcaster, sorry. (laughs) My bad. We'll get there eventually. Anyway, the the bottom point is, the the point is modern master 2015 packs are known for chipping so if you got to choose between those and the iconic masters um iconic masters are known for being a little flimsy but in sleeve they're great so um the ramp is looking pretty good here uh if you're looking at the foils say for instance on tcg player you, there's a bunch of copies just under 10 and then some close to 10 and then you get up into the 14 15 19 and then you're off to the races so I think you scoop up five to 10 copies of these at 10 and wait for a double up. You'll be good to go. Okay. I think, uh, I think it's a good shot. Um, my second card for the week is, uh, focusing on standard, which is kind of crazy to say first time in 143 Mm -hmm. episodes. Um, deafening clarion, uh, very odd card, three mana red, white. Uh, it's, Sort of cross between Pyroclasm and some other card that gives all your creatures lifelink, whose name I don't remember. Uh, notable for people thinking that is a terrible design. <laughs> uh, like, uh, what's his name? Pat Sullivan and uh, a couple of people were talking about how they imagined Rosewater having fits that this card exists. Um, but what's interesting is this showing up in all of the control decks are seem to be playing three to four deafening clarion um, between main and sideboard. The Boros mid decks are all playing it. 
uh, again, main and sideboard. So, and there's a couple other decks too that we're using it. Um, basically, if you're playing red and white, you're probably playing this card. Um, so a fair bit of, of uptake on it. Now you can pick up copies right now at eh, two, 250 or so um, online. And you might get lucky and find them a little cheaper locally. You're not going to see a $15 rare here, but if this level of play continues, if it continues to be like a three to four of in the, you know, tier one standard control deck, and there's a mid range deck that wants all four of them. And then you might even have it peppered elsewhere. Uh, that's the type of demand that can push a card like this up into the five, six, seven, eight dollar range. Uh, we saw it with Settle the Wreckage was sort of, I think, filled a similar space. Uh, Settle the Wreckage was up to $10 at one point um, back in May of this year. Uh, and when uh, Guilds of Ravnica released, it jumped up towards $8 as well. It settled back down around five or six. Uh, actually, it's still, wait, that's paper, sorry. Or online. Yeah, this jumped up to, sorry, Settle the Wreckage was around 4 or $5 looking at the online prices. Uh, and when people really realized how much it was being used back in May of this year, it jumped up to 15 and Settle the Wreckage has come back down, but now it's still $8. $8 and you could buy Settle the Wreckages way back uh, for like 3 bucks, 4 bucks. So I think that Deafening Clarion is positioned to possibly pull that off. Uh, I'm, not pro- I'm not guaranteeing you that it will. Um, you need to keep an eye on Standard and see if it keeps seeing as much play as it is. But if it continues to show up in Jeskai like this, it's definitely... Um, going to be in a position to to make a move up towards seven or eight bucks standard rares like this make me nervous <laughs> um i was i was going through my box of shame today and they are full of standard rares of this type where they're seeing some play not clear that the deck they're in is going to be front and center in the meta although in this case i will admit that there are there are not one but but several versions of the boros decks so they do look like they'll be around for a while um I just feel like it's the kind of card where it can go 250 to 5, but buy list is too low for it to matter, and you end up having to like put way too much effort in trying to trade out of them um, when you could have just bought one like Mythic Edition set and sat on it for a bit. Well, sure, but if we just load up every week and tell people it's to, the right play is still to buy Mythic Editions, we run out of things to talk about pretty quick. <laughs> Fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. The... I think if you need them for a deck, cool. Um, I, I question how much room there is for additional cards from Guilds of Ravnica to spike, it, given how much EV is being pumped out of a few of the mythics already right now. Yeah. Um, this, this set is in a very different position than Ixalan was this time last year, where there was a lot less going on. Um, so I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to see how that one plays out. Okay. Um, my, my next pick though, isn't tremendous, isn't a lot better. I would definitely call this a long shot. <laughs> this, this, this just was interesting to me more as a humble brag about the fact that I mentioned this during our Dominaria set review with Todd and Ugh. that I pointed out Ugh. that this card was, this card was going to be printed and, you know, is it good enough for there to be a wizard's deck in modern given how good eight lightning bolts would be? And the answer was No. But lo and behold, it has top aided. <laughs> so it just finished seventh in the SCG Charlotte modern meta where blue red wizards is absolutely a thing. And whether it's going to be a central pillar of the format or not uh, seems unlikely. Um, but 
and it's only an uncommon. But uh, peak supply is behind us. Uh, there aren't tremendously a tremendously deep portfolio of foils sitting around. You can get them around six or seven dollars. Wait on a sale, maybe get them a couple bucks off. And these seem likely to me to dodge a reprint for several years. And it's the kind of card that could easily show up in a commander set in three years and some wizards themed deck um, that would uh, protect the foils for even longer. And in which case the foils could, you know, I don't have to squint too hard to imagine them getting somewhere between 15 and 20. Sure, sure. Uh, You are uh, (laughs) you're not going to get to rub any salt in that particular wound of the the other side of that bat. Um. Yep. Yeah. So if if you've got to pick one of the cards on our list this week, which one are you buying? <sighs> Probably Azusa. That's more the speed of the type of cards I typically buy. I like to shoot for stuff that's a little meatier, a little heavier weight. I don't like to have to deal with tons of copies of cards uh, and that allows me to sink a good chunk of change in without having to buy, you know, deal with 30 copies. But if you're operating in a different type of market, I can see, um, I don't know if it's not that I'm not sure which one I like the most. A fitting eye is an opportunistic thing. You're not going to have an opportunity to buy a ton of them. So it's not even really like it's a choice. What about you? I think it's Primeval Titan. I think it's got the most upside percentage-wise. And Asusa was a rare in Modern Masters 25. Sorry, Masters 25, where Primeval Titan was, again, a mythic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the foils are going to drain that much faster. Asusa is also competing against its own GP... uh, Sorry, um... Not GP promo, no, Judge Foil promo, which uses exactly the same art as M25, whereas the Primeval Titan uh, promo is inferior art, and there are hardly any copies of it left anyway. Hmm. I, I guess I would have to... It might be Primeval Titan. I'd have to stop and look a little closer at the inventory to really get a feel for it. Helps to have that in front of you. So speaking of Titan, um, what got me looking at this card was just how many copies showed up at Charlotte last weekend. So in the top eight, we had two Titan decks, first and second. So boy, that was an exciting final. <laughs> <laughs> Whose Titan hits the table first? It's like playing EDH. Yeah. So Titan, Titan, blue, white control. This was the, and if you're keeping a scorecard on whether it's Jace or Teferi, this one was split 2-2. Two, two. Uh, Valakut running another four Titans. So 12 total in the top eight. Um, <laughs> Bant Spirits. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Band Spirits, Jund, and then the Blue-Red Aggro, which I'm not calling that Blue-Red Wizards is a travesty, Star City Games, um, and and Storm. Um, Storm is like a finance wasteland. <laughs> there's, no. there's nothing in that deck that's that's worth pursuing. No. Um, it's notable that you got to keep an eye on Jund. Uh, a, that it's coming back into the meta. B, the number of copies of Assassin's Trophy they're running to decide whether you want to be getting in on foil Assassin's Trophies, and if so, at what price point you need to be in for that to be worth your time. Mm-hmm. Um, thought it was also notable that I called Scapeshift a few weeks ago as not being dead in modern, and it finished fourth here with full four copies. Oh, that's nice. Uh... Yeah. 
this is a very odd top eight for modern. You're not going to see this type of thing happen frequently, right? Like where you have 12 Titans in the top eight is, uh, is pretty wild, but certainly, you know, at least it's plausible. Uh, I think that's probably evidence of, of a cyclical sort of swingy metagame more than anything. Um, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the Star City Games tournaments are about 300 to 600 people every weekend. They are spread out all over the country. And your regional meta may vary. Yeah. Um, and because Modern, that combined with the fact that Modern has 20 viable decks right now, um, maybe six to eight of which are tier one on any given weekend, depending on what else everybody's bringing, um, we're seeing a lot of variability in the top eights. Um, you know, it was Dredge, Dredge 1-2 the week before, now Titan 1-2, and who knows what it'll be next weekend. I do not. If you do, you can win it. I think it's interesting how the standard meta has turned the corner, which we alluded to earlier. Jeskai Control, Boros Angels, Boros Mentor, Celestia Angels, Is It Phoenix, uh, the aforementioned Arclight Phoenix presentation, uh, Presenting itself in the format. Jeskai Control, Jeskai Control, and Celestia Tokens. Not a single black-green mid-range deck in the top eight at GP New Jersey. Uh, seems to suggest that they figured out how to shut that deck down, and Takatli Honor Guard seems like it was a big part of that. Yeah, there were two of them in the top 16, so they still managed to get in there, uh, but that's <clears throat> apparently the the angle that people are going with. I do wonder if, that, if it, there's going to be some anti-Takatli Honor Guard, you know, next week right like is it is that the nail in the coffin or, or, or will they they counterplay with it um i'm not anticipating that green black is dead they will probably just have to uh revise their strategy um standard has felt pretty swingy too though right like we had the one show where we're like hey look there's seven golgari decks in the top eight of this event and then, then this week, it's, hey, look, there's seven Borosex in the top eight. Uh, I don't think standard is anywhere near settled at this point, um, which is well, great and it's worth players. And it's worth mentioning that that was only one of the two GPs. The other GP was the one in France at Lille, and it was won by Frenzy Red, which had no presence uh, in New Jersey. Mono Blue Tempo was second there. Two of the black green decks were third and fourth. Is it Phoenix in fifth? And then two Jeskai Control and Celestia Tokens. So a good looking meta. Six to eight different variants on some, you know, three or four central themes. And looks like a lot of play, a lot of meta tuning. That's exactly what Spit Standard is supposed to look like. It's as healthy as it's been any time in the last five years. Yeah, which is great. I mean, that's really cool. Uh, and part of the reason why the standard finance has been a little more active because now, you know, we look at it and go, Oh, well, just guys doing really well. Like maybe that's the direction the format's going to pivot. You know, if it's going to move that way, here are some cards to be aware of. And then the next week, suddenly we're looking at uh, a whole new slew of decks. And we're like, Oh, well, okay. I guess maybe these are the mythics to keep an eye out now. And these are the rares if they become popular um, as opposed to being like, Oh, look, the same three decks one again, uh and it's the same rares and mythics everybody knows about nothing's changed so i guess uh move on to another format um so that that type of variance is good for everybody it's good for the players it's good for viewers it's good for people who are trying to make money on it uh it's just great for everybody also worth noting that you know six weeks ago we were questioning whether teferi hero of dominaria would have the supporting white cards to be good in the format uh that seems to have been settled <laughs> Fairies everywhere in any deck that's running white and blue. Uh, Jeskai Control looks like a strong contender for 
you know, top three decks in the format and Teferi's in every single copy. Mm-hmm. And weren't you saying that uh, LSV was said that it's, not, you know, Jace is gone and now it's all about. In blue-white control in modern. Right. LSV said, wrote an article on Channel Fireball that we talked about last week where he said Ben Stark had mostly done the research where he his conclusion was that you shouldn't be running any Jace with the Mind Sculptor right now in modern. You should just be running Teferi's. Yeah, which is pretty nuts. And, you know, more support for Teferi and standard, of course. Uh, and I don't expect that's going to change with the release of the Fall Ravnica set either unless they print a one-mana kill target Teferi spell. Um, well, it's got me looking pretty hard at Russian foils, which are like between promo and non-promo. You know, like <laughs> t- take our worst spec of the week, knock it off the bottom of the board, and talk. Let's talk again about Teferi foils, about foreign Teferi foils in the say hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollar range are probably future five hundred to eight hundred dollar cards. Um, would be my guess. Give it three to five years to mature let's say like goes through the standard cycle probably falls a bit as standard falls off and some of the standard foil copies make their way back into the market then get snapped back up and starts to drain and it doesn't see a reprint for a while like a a planeswalker is not something we often see as a promo like it could end up being like a pro tour promo at some point Mm -hmm. would be my guess is its first reprint opportunity something like liliana the veil and i would put that at like 2022 or something like my daughter will have her first robo boyfriend by then (laughs) uh that's that's a long time frame right like that's quite a while to go and that's a big buy-in too the the, boy those are scary because it's like that's the type of thing where if you've got 30 grand that you want to spend on magic that's not a bad way to go about it thus of course fear (laughs) is like that's interesting, yeah. If you I mean, that's one of the things... Up, the, the cost, if you screw that up, is pretty rough. But the interesting thing about, like, high-end modern foils, I think, are targeted a lot less by the high-end community than graded. Like, the, if you hang out on those message boards, the, the big money in Magic is really frantically acquiring graded. It's all about the 9.5s. It's all about the 10s. It's all about the getting every single thing out of your binder that might be gradable, sending it off and praying for the nine fives and the tens and the corners are never better than a nine these days. And everybody's up in arms and you don't like, there is a foreign foils board where things change hands on a regular basis. And, you know, people have been talking about this downturn in the magic market, the second half of this year, as though a retrace is a downturn when it's not at all. Um, A downturn is where the overall demand of the market has fallen, um, which is not, what's happening a retrace is where you know a card goes from five hundred dollars to a thousand but the thousand is represented by the lowest posted price new sellers enter the market and drive the price back down a little bit towards where it from where it started but it's still the card is still up 40 or 60 percent from where it was less than a year ago and people call that a downturn i mean that to to me a, a downturn is where the entire market moves down a down the hill and you're seeing overall less demand for the hobby as a whole which yeah. is not where we are right downturn um, is where suddenly your fnm has uh 60 can't, can't get of the people that it used to yeah your fnm can't pull a draft together or whatever um or standards doing so bad that's no nobody showing up um the 
you know, when cards have spiked as high as reserve list and graded reserve list has in the last three years, um, there are going to be plateaus and retraces. That that is part of the program. You got to keep your eye on the long term curve and try to predict where the end point is for that. Um, and you know, on the re- the best of the best stuff, the stuff that has like a graded population of four or whatever. Like somebody sure. posted a perfect ten. Um, CE Birds of Paradise the other day or something. Um, Aren't those that's population corners? Yeah, oh. that's a that's a po- that's a population three. There's there's only three graded tens for that card, and I was like, it was like they wanted four or five hundred dollars for it, and I was like, I might bite that off, like four or five hundred dollars. Yeah, that actually sounds kind of cheap, right? Yeah, like it's a, a ten with square corners, and it's birds. Yeah. So the thing is that my point is that a lot of the attention is on is on the graded community more than it is on foreign foils, for instance. Um, and I think that some of the there are some Russian promo foil teferis that are probably too cheap. Like, I, I don't think you can go wrong picking up, say, a single copy of that and throwing it in your portfolio for two years. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that people forget, first of all, here's a, here's the thing we haven't mentioned lately. Have you noticed, uh, you probably haven't because you don't really do this, but um, getting Russian boxes of Guilds of Ravnica is way harder than it was like a year or two years ago. Because Wizards used to directly distribute those boxes through their direct distribution program to LGSs. Like if you got X amount of inventory based on your WPN level, you could get one of each of Chinese, Japanese, Russian, German, and Korean, I believe. Um, But that program's over. Like almost all magic distribution is through distributors now. And so, and the distributors are not, not all of the distributors carry foreign product at all. It looks like wizards is shifting towards foreign product only really being distributed where like in the home country of the intended language. And so Russian boxes are really only available on eBay right now for guilds of Ravnica from Russia, which of course means they're not $90 boxes from sports and more. They're 125 to $130 boxes that have to get shipped from Moscow. Mm-hmm. So that makes Russian foils that much less plentiful stateside. And since this is the biggest magic market, I suspect that means Russian foils, Korean foils, German foils, etc. have a uh, higher upside if they are big ticket cards um, moving through the next few years more than the same you know, the same language foils from, say, the last five years where they were relatively plentiful. Like I got my hands on, I'm going to say, eight, seven or eight boxes of Russian Kaladesh under $90. Um, but I can't, I haven't bought a single box of Russian Gilza Ravnica because I can't find it at a price I like. Jeez. Um, I did hear about that. Uh, I saw some discussion on Twitter about how much harder it was to get those types of boxes. And I didn't know exactly what had happened, but I was aware that it was a discussion. Um <clears throat> That would definitely change that formula pretty significantly uh, because now so many of them are going to get open in Russia, of course. It's not just going to add $40 value to the box. I feel like that would change the distribution model kind of significantly. Um, so, so I get this. I had to search Guilds of Ravnica Russian yeah. booster box on eBay.com. One listing. Whew. What do they want? 160 they got they got two available. They want one ten plus twenty five shipping. One thirty five, which is totally reasonable price and shipping price given where it's coming from. Um, the only other copy that comes up on that result is an eight hundred and eighty eight dollar box of original original Ravnica Russian, um, 
which is actually pretty sexy. Um, but my point is, two years ago for Kaladesh, I had my pick of the litter. I could, there was 30 or 40 listings because a ton of midsize LGSs in the US were carrying that product. Yeah. Now nobody is. So these boxes are going to be way more rare, which leads me to believe that things like Russian foil uh, Teferi and Russian foil uh, Assassin's Trophy may be more tempting than people are realizing. Including us. I mean, that's, a, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't something I was doing a lot of investigating into, but, you know, if you're looking at if the supply difference stateside is that significant, that's going to be a huge change in the pricing. Maybe not initially, but down the road for sure. And you're not going to have to wait long for that to manifest, I would say. It also suggests that they're just printing less of those languages because obviously the print runs like a few years back for, say, Kaladesh considered that some of that product was going to get pushed through the distribution chain in the U.S. So I'm not 100% sure, like don't quote me that it's impossible for LGSs to get that product, but I can tell you that all of my usual sources don't have any. I mean, and sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, it's like I have local stores around the U.S. that I have bought product from for the last several years. None of them have the availability of that product through their distributor. Now, we could talk to Ed or Jeremy or whoever and or, you know, DJ and or Corbin or whoever you're involved with stores or running stores or, um, you know, buying at GPs and get the full story and pin it down. So we should probably do that between now and next cast. But my first take on it is I think that these languages are significantly more rare than they once were. Which which represents a pretty big opportunity if you can, you know, 135 for a box of that stuff, you know, might be more than you would have paid in the past. But if it's that much harder to find them, could it be quite a reasonable price? And the real question here, I think, is, um, is how, are they just making less? Because that's a really big deal. Uh, you know, paying 20 or 30 bucks extra for a box is like, yeah, that's annoying. It adds to the EV of the to it, uh, which can change the equation. But if there is if you've gone from every LGS in America ordering one box of Russian, roughly, you know, if it averages out uh, to suddenly none of them, uh, that's thousands and thousands of boxes that you're suddenly not introducing to the market, which is, you know, in a case of Teferi. Uh, probably, you know, a hundred foil copies maybe uh, in a pretty shallow market to begin with. So that would be a real big deal for influencing foil prices. It also behooves our listeners that have not yet taken the the necessary steps to set up their contacts in Europe to get on that. Because if this is true, then card market um, is even more and the Facebook message boards in Europe are even more attractive for tracking some of this stuff down where the thing about the Russian sellers is even when they have when their like inventory seems plentiful, like where you have eight different guys from Russia selling a foil Russian promo to ferry, they got that at the uh, pre-release weekend. And then they never got it again and will never get it again and can't get any more from Wizards. Like that was just in the pre-release packs. And whether they got they bought them for players or or cracked them themselves, held them back from players and sold them online is all irrelevant because in six months they that inventory will drain and never, ever, ever be restocked. They are essentially masterpieces. In fact, they're probably more rare than masterpieces. A foil, a pre-release Russian foil mythic has got to be more rare than a masterpiece. Uh, I mean, if the supply has changed to match the distribution then yeah i mean it seems well no but that in in the case of a pre-release card it doesn't even matter about whether i'm right about stateside distribution of booster boxes Mm -hmm. because booster boxes don't have promo cards uh it's not 
it's not like any it's not like any pre-release kits in any language but english are ever distributed in the u.s okay so pre-release kits specifically right so pre-release kit cards promo russian foils only exist in whatever quantity um you can assign to the wpn stores in that country and in the in in those surrounding russian-speaking countries which as i've mentioned before is like less than 100 uh so yeah i i guess that's probably true i think you're probably right that they are uh depending on the language foreign pre-release foils are rarer than a masterpiece yeah yeah i think that that's fair and so let's say that there is 100 stores and i think that's actually too high in russia and they get 50 pre-release kits which i think is too high um that gives you five thousand uh 500 kits no five thousand kits and of those five thousand kits what are the odds of pulling a foil to ferry yeah. real low it's right like, like one two max per store that gives me a number less than 250 copies total in the world hmm. weird so we're thinking about um and i'm looking at card market looking at the booster boxes over there and they are significantly more plentiful which makes sense okay so <laughs> some possible opportunities out there for you guys i guess yeah it was a good meta overview. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't buy them because James and I are going to. So get away. So moving right along. But, uh, we wanted to say, can we revise our pick of the week? Uh, I think we're both on <laughs> uh, Russian Guilds of Ravnica boxes. Yeah, Guilds of Ravnica booster boxes. Uh, a lot of good cards in this set. Was it, was it just uh, Guilds of Ravnica where that started? No. I think that process started a year ago and we just didn't pick up on it fast enough. Hmm. And it didn't matter. Like, I wasn't looking to buy Russian Ixalan. Well, Dominaria, though. <laughs> I, I did buy some Russian Dominaria, and I don't remember having trouble with it. Dominaria would be a good one as well. Uh... Well, it's worth taking a look at. Um, anyway, we're, we're, let's check in on this again next week. Um, still want to spend a little bit of time talking about the, the process of branching it out into other collectibles finance. Um, if you are having fun with your magic finance, you know, making your hobby cheaper or making a little extra money on the side and you want to look at some other stuff, um, that is something that I have dabbled in quite a bit, uh, and can share at least a little bit of information on and then send people off in some other directions. Well, so I'll, I'll start out here. My, my thought process having, observed other collectible markets but not having gotten involved in them is that it seems like you really can't beat magic for um returns for the most part especially how frequent and consistent they are uh now i'm sure that there are occasionally products that you can snag for cheap in another market whether they're shoes or toys or fashion or bourbon or whatever that then suddenly you can get four or five times more, 10 times more, not that long after, but I would guess those are very rare. Um, And that's because of the game mechanic of magic changes the equation. Is that an accurate read? Yeah. So I think that is the decision matrix that you set up um, as your primary thesis. And then you explore segment by segment to see. The first thing I'll say is if you're not Mac, if you're mostly a magic player, and you're mostly interested in magic finance for making the hobby cheaper, then maybe this isn't even something you want to look at. Um, you, you might 
if you're not maximizing your magic knowledge, then spreading yourself out too thin across other hobbies um, may not be your best bet. I think that it makes sense to get near your optimal activity in hobby A before you jump over to hobby B. But there's a lot, once you max out on A, um, you're going to find that a lot of the skills and like the research patterns that you put together, spreadsheets that you're using, um, you know, contacts that you've made may open up new avenues of approach. So for instance, recently I started getting into D&D. I'm DMing an ongoing campaign for a growing group. And one of the ways I've gotten a lot of my minis and books and stuff and all of the like the insane amount of accessories for D&D, like before I hadn't even like looked at an RPG since like I was 11 or something. Um, when I think we were playing like second edition of D&D or something when I was like in some dude's basement before I ever like kissed a girl. Um, and now like getting back into it, like 25 years later, it's like, holy shit. Like in many ways, Wizards, which also owns D&D, is doing D&D much better than they're doing Magic. Like uh, Critical Role is a slam dunk hit on YouTube, right? These guys, like that team goes around doing live performances that like sell out all over the country and um, represents a much more powerful marketing vehicle for that game um, than anything Magic has, despite D&D being a smaller brand overall and having a long way to go to catch up with Magic. Um, they have an impressive amount of uh, third-party accessory uh ecosystem that's really so surprising for instance, like, to me i would not have pegged DD to have a larger stuff market than magic what does yeah the thing about magic is that like you need sleeves and a deck box and a play mat and that's about it. and cards most of the rest of <laughs> sure but the, the card yeah but the cards are like the core thing in DD, the the dm is primarily the purchaser the, the players don't really need to buy much, but the DMs go really deep. So like you want to like play with this monster this week and this monster next week. And over the course of the campaign, you're going to introduce a hundred different miniatures. Well, you got to buy all of those. And the average price of a miniature is anywhere, you know, a small miniature 28 millimeter scale is something like four to $5. And if you want some of the larger, like special edition ones can go upwards of a hundred. Um, and then of course, over on the kingdom death side of things, which is like your premium bespoke board gaming miniatures, um, experience you're talking about anywhere from 600 to three thousand dollars to get all that stuff yeah. um, and that's unpainted that's before you even then go down the rabbit hole and say well i guess i should paint some of my stuff because otherwise it's not going to look that good on the board and then you buy 300 dollars worth of paints and an airbrush gun and a compressor and you set up a workshop and you, and you get, get a gas you mask get an and... apartment because your wife threw you out yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like you get into miniature terrain, like you're like, well, like it's so annoying to have to draw out the dungeon every time. So I guess I'll just buy like $3,000 worth of tiles. So like I'm talking to this guy in on the West Coast of Canada that's got like a $20,000 terrain collection and wants to trade for some magic cards. So we're trying to work something out. Um, and, you know, that's where things get interesting. It was like a, a listener of this show traded me my first set of manuals, like the first $100 worth of D&D content I needed. Uh, for some magic cards that I still owe him because I haven't dug them all out of my binder yet. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my point is that you're going to find that people you're already dealing with in the course of operating, you know, under the aegis of MTG Finance are also into other hobbies that you might 
have crossover potential for. So you might be able to do deals that involve multiple hobbies at once. Um, and, you know, in if you're big into board games, then it's been pretty hard over the last five years or so to miss all the action that's going on on Kickstarter, right? <laughs> yeah. Because pretty much any great board game that has a miniatures theme is built around showing off these fantastic renders of the miniatures and then promising them to deliver them within a year and then delivering them two to three years yep. later. And people that get in on all of the Kickstarter exclusives, those minis almost always end up being worth double to triple the price on eBay. And then you end up running into the same issues that Magic does with Chinese counterfeiters, where all of the Chinese counterfeiter sites are selling knockoffs of like the Kingdom Death and D&D minis in exactly the same way they sell magic cards Mm -hmm. and they have all the same conversations and make all the same videos on youtube and all the same reddit posts etc but over there in a different hobby and that's also happening over in the uh reddit forums for like supreme gear yeah um the ridiculous ridiculously overhyped street streetwear where people pay like high school students to wait in line for them overnight and it's this whole like underground supreme mafia yeah i was i was looking at the uh the reddit uh what is it rep something rep life or rep fit the one day uh which is all reproduction ultra high fashion reproduction gear and like the the rabbit hole was like shockingly deep there is an entire culture with its own like memes and jokes and slang and like values and priorities and blah 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 just for like wearing counterfeit kith and supreme and whatnot and i'm like holy moly like i know there's like a million niche hobbies right that's what the internet did but it was just funny how robust of a community that had turned into and the funny thing is is like how neatly a lot of this stuff is siloed like the premise when we started shelf life um my project shelflife.net uh was that you know when we went out talking to investors we were always talking about the venn diagram of nerds jocks and gamers and how culturally those things were separate for a long time but that in the modern era, like in the, the the 21st century, those Venn diagrams have gotten tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where you have the same guy is going to go watch a football game, then go see a Marvel movie and then go play D&D with his friends. And and that the that kind of like collapsing of culture into like a megaculture um, leads to a lot of uh, overlap for the people that branch out. And they become imba- like kind of like cross-cultural ambassadors that are like talking to the different silos. Um, but that a lot of these, you know, there are magic players who would think Supreme people are crazy and vice versa. So I spent a lot of time in the toy world. I was se- buying and selling toys for about five years before I got back in, like seriously in MTG Finance. And I would say the margins, as to your earlier point, were about like you can make 100% on a toy, especially like a rare like kaiju or vinyl release out of Japan or something, which is a fairly limited market. You can also make money on things like, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and Transformers products, um, which all have third party ecosystems as well. Um, you know, people uh, buy accessories for Transformers that cost $40 just to get the gun that looks like cartoon correct um, to put on your Optimus Prime. <laughs> Right. And you're like, and you're laughing, right? Because, but the transformer guy thinks you're retarded for having a play mat. So like it goes both directions. The, the, the I just have to say the level of grognardiness at toy collecting is at least one standard deviation higher than it is magic. Just <laughs> <laughs> so one of the, the primary advantages though, and one of the reasons that I focus more on MTG finance than I do on toy finance these days, even though we still go to like a couple of like big 
uh, conferences a year and run tables and stuff as vendors is the shipping. Yeah. Um, the fact that you can plain white envelope stuff in Magic is a big deal. That's, that's and especially if you're especially if you're a risk taker. So like I anything under 100 with somebody that I especially if I trust you, um, I'll ship you a $100 card, no problem in a plain white envelope because the loss rate is so low by my experience that that's going to work out fine. Whereas if I'm selling from Canada to the US and I want to sell you a $40 toy, I'm looking at $20 shipping. So I, I am immediately disqualified from competing on eBay in the US. Um, so that makes a big difference. That means that for toy finance, I'm mostly local. Like I, I work local conferences like three times a year now that we have Alara. Um, but for MG finance, I can do that just by breezing past the post office and dropping off mail three, three times a week. Mm -hmm. Um, so that makes a big difference. Um, it's also like tricky in certain segments, like in apparel, people will try to return stuff because it doesn't fit or they don't like the look of it. Or they'll try to trade you back, uh, you know, they pull the same nonsense that sometimes they do in Magic where they'll try to send you back a knockoff when you sent them the real thing. Um, so there's that angle well, to things. One thing, I know you've doubt... I say one thing I've noticed, sorry, um, because a couple of years ago, uh, I think last year or two years ago, I picked up some of the other toys from San Diego Comic-Con. Um, because I at the time I was like, you know, I was going to buy the magic cars and I was like, well, I'm placing an order. Uh, I pulled up eBay and then I looked through what were going to be the other San Diego Comic-Con promos that would be available on Hasbro Toy Shop. You know, what is the price in Hasbro Toy Shop? What's it selling on eBay for? Found the couple where the margin was good enough and bought them. And I've got five or six toys. Uh, I picked up five or six toys and uh, they're still here. Uh, I haven't, I had the, the prices never, the prices sort of settled and never climbed back up. So like if I were to sell them, I am probably taking a loss on them right now, uh, which I might end up doing just cause I'm, and this is where the point I'm getting to, I'm sick of having them in the house because they're not tiny. You know, if you have a magic collection, unless yeah. it's huge, which it, let's be honest, it will turn into, but theoretically you can own a couple hundred magic cards and it takes up a very small amount of space. I've got four or five boxes and that is like, a serious volume of product in my home. And that's like four items. You know, if my toy collection looked like my magic collection, it would literally be another apartment worth of space. And on top of that, not only the volume, the condition is a pain in the ass because I have to be, I have to baby all of those boxes to make sure I'm not banging them up. Whereas magic cards, like, yeah, I double sleeve them and throw them in a binder. And it's like, yeah, I'm not throwing it across the room, but I'm not worried about that card getting damaged once it's stored properly. But those card, those toy boxes, unless you're putting them in completely separate cardboard boxes that are roughly the same shape so that you're not bumping it around inside of it, you have to make, you know, you're worried they're going to get damaged. I'm like, I don't want to deal with that crap. Yeah, that's one of the things that applies to the kicks collectors too, right? Like if you're buying limited edition Nikes, mm -hmm. you're not wearing them. Like if some, some people are, I guess, but a lot of the collectors just like my buddy used to collect limited edition Nikes and he just had a shoe room that just had a hundred shoe boxes just stacked on a wall. And it was just like a wall of, it just looked like a Nike store. <laughs> he didn't have a great display for them. They, they were all like worth money, but on one of the great things about magic cards that magic players don't always um, give enough credit is that you get to play with your investment. Yeah. So like even if you're into MGG Finance, if you're only dabbling in each, like each spec is only a few copies that you might play with, you know, you could buy a foil Teferi and play with it all season. As long as you take care of it, you might still be able to sell it as near mint. And and because of that, you're you you're you know you're handling just the existence of sleeves and hard cases makes it a whole different equation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, now I know you've you've dabbled a little on the consumer side with like uh, limited limited run alcohol, right? Like you 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 and Jason all have talked a lot on social media about specialty beers that you guys pick up. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a odd animal too, and and I, I can't say that I've like gotten into it because some people like will chase bottles and they only do it because they're going to resell it, blah, 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 kind of a pain in the ass. That's got its own host of challenges. Um, There's a condition issue, but not in the same way that you would get with like boxes of toys. There's a condition because if you don't uh, store it properly, it will, the beer, the beer will go bad. Um, Same with liquor. Liquor is a little safer in that regard, but they both have that concern. Um, There's also the problem that some stuff you can't, is, is is weird because it's collectible, but it's got a shelf life. So, for instance, if you're talking about beers with a lot of additives, so uh, your pumpkin beers that are very popular this time of year have uh, flavor additives, which will decay over time. Um, so some of those are really low run. Uh, but at the same time, you can't sit on them. You have to drink them right away because the longer you age it, the longer the flavor profile diminishes that specialty flavor. So they're kind of weird. The shipping's a problem because now, first of all, you're shipping alcohol, uh, which can run into various problems. But even if you ignore that, you're ship- still shipping glass bottles, which can break, right. uh, which would be a real bummer. Um Yeah. And they also have the storage problem. They're bulky. And uh, my wife will happily tell you about how annoying my beer collection is in our closet. Um, <laughs> so, that, and, that, and and they're heavy. Yeah, yeah that, that's its own challenge uh, to deal with all that nonsense. Yeah. So, I mean, the... Oh, I'm sorry. One last thought. Couple of- they, a lot, most vendors also will not sell you too much of it. Like most of the fancy beers that I buy... Uh, you are limited by the store to one or two bottles. Uh, so sure. if you're specking on magic cards, like you dump them all in your cart, who cares? They're happy to sell them. But beer stores are like, we want people to enjoy this. And you buying our entire 48 bottles does not mean that the people in your city get to enjoy it. So no, you can have one. And you're like, ugh. Right. So, I mean, a couple other segments, I have some experience, uh, at least tangentially, through friends in my network. Um uh, are comic books and skateboards. Skateboards from the 80s and 90s have been a big thing. And my buddy at one point bought a $200 lot of uh, skateboard stickers, just like a cardboard box full of skateboard, skateboard stickers, stickers that are given out at skateboard stores and events and stuff. And these were stickers that dated back to the 80s and mid 90s and ended up making 8600 US, splitting them up into lots and selling them on, U- on eBay. Because a lot of the stickers were super rare and there is a relatively small but active community that just buys those stickers. <laughs> Which I'm absolutely positive they don't stick to anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. They, no they go into binders just, just like, you know, like the sticker binders when we had here when we were kids, like scratch and sniff and puffy stickers. Uh well, you know, it's funny you say that about the the skateboard stickers because I definitely not that long ago looked at trying to buy a uh, Senate hoodie. Senate being the skating rollerblading company that was really big in the early mid 90s uh, and they don't make them anymore. And I'm pretty sure if I had ever managed to track one down, I probably would have paid 
it would have paid through the nose to get it. Not that I would have, but like I would have had to, uh, because finding one of those in great condition was impossible. And skating culture was so big at that time that everyone my age has fond memories of it, right? Like find somebody who didn't enjoy playing Tony Hawk. Uh, but all of that stuff was so, so part of a culture that was about, using things and like there, you know, that wasn't a, a scene that valued collectibles in the same way that comic books were. Uh, so finding stuff in great condition is probably virtually impossible these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like magic uh, apparel, like there, there was a set of like zomba zombie themed magic shoes. I remember I bought my dad for Christmas like a decade ago or something. And I saw them up on the, <laughs> um, the magic accessories, Facebook group the other day for like $200, which is about, three times what I bought them for or whatever. They were like overstocked on the wizard website at one point because nobody wanted them. Now they're like impossible to find because there was probably only a a few hundred, maybe a thousand pairs ever made. And now they, you know, they have like zombies like attacking you on the, on the heel of the shoe under some clear uh, tread, which Hmm. is, is pretty cool now that you can't find them anywhere. Yeah. Let's be clear. Those are still not cool shoes. In in the abstract, but they are nifty if they're you know in that they're yeah. rare. Um, one thing, all one thing that we haven't talked about that I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of magic finance people are into is video yep. game. Does that too uh, collectibles? Um, like old NES and SNES and Dreamcast and that type of stuff. Um, which you know I, that one I paid. A, I, I don't want to say I got into, but I paid enough attention to it to like kind of see the numbers, and that really reinforced why magic is so good at this are good for this type of behavior because they were all jazzed that they were getting, you know, their copy that they paid a hundred dollars for two years later was worth 130. Uh, and you know, so, or, you know, it might've been a little better than that, but not by much. And I'm like, uh, this is not worth the effort involved, uh, for that level of profit. So all of these markets have their, have a way to make money, but I just have not seen anything that has the returns with the strength and uh, turnaround time and liquidity and ease of use that magic does. It just, there just didn't seem to be anything. That's good. It, it depends on your network too, right? Like you were talking about how you're still holding those toys. My buddy had a similar experience holding uh, Snapcaster mages. So at, at mm-hmm. some point I told him to buy a bunch at like $35 or something after they rotated at a standard. And he ended up selling them back to me at 30 just to get him, them off his hands like six months later because he was too lazy to, to sell them. And I ended up selling those for like 80 before their first reprint. Well, probably say probably not in the t- right after he sold them to you. Though. No, it was, I mean, it was less than a year later, though. But it was really it was a function of they had been sitting on his desk and they were like psychologically annoying him that he hadn't managed to mm-hmm. unload them. But it was really just a function of he hadn't bothered to do the research and he considered it daunting. And likewise, like I, he deals with a hundred thousand a year in comics, graded comics that I, I have yet to touch, even though that market is much larger than magic and much more fertile, um, because, you know, DC and Marvel movies being the center of the like Western cultural universe over the last decade, um, has that, has made that a, you know, massive industry. Um, and every every a time a new sentence. like TV show or movie is announced, the original like appearance of name your character um, goes off the chain and doubles or triples in price and then goes through a retrace period. So a lot of money has been made in comics, but it's also funny in comics that they deal with the same uh, issues around bulk, right? Like not the 90s comic collapse means that every comic collector from that era has thousands of copies of worthless 
comic books that aren't gradable, that art is dubious, or they, they're like had 16 different variants covers and are just utter nothingness that, you know, guys end up buying like trade these giant collections of comics that take up more room than almost anything, right? Like long boxes of comics are probably the worst defender of almost any uh, collectible you could be trading in. I've been in guys' basements where they have like a hundred square feet full of comic book box, long boxes. And they'll, some guy will load them up in a pickup truck, take them to his house, try to mine them for the diamonds in the rough the same way other people do with magic collections, and then sell them off to some other guy who tries to do the same thing and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot of the same cycles. Um, yeah. So I would say that like you need the network to be able to work the system. Um, so you need the time and you need to have enough interest and knowledge to make it worth your while. Like I'm never, I'm not interested in cigars, so it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to pursue cigar finance because I'm never going to feel motivated to participate. Um, so you want to focus on the stuff that you already like, but also keep in mind that the more financially minded you get in any given hobby, the less fun it is and the more work it is. Yeah. Uh, and it takes some of the excitement away too. You know, magic was really fun for us when you would get a pack and you'd open a card that you hadn't seen before. And it was really cool and exciting and like, Oh, this is great. Right? Like I get to add this card to my collection, but now we're like, Oh yeah. Like I, I don't really get excited opening packs no more so than like opening a lottery ticket, uh, which is to say not that much because I know, I know everything that can be inside of it. I know the values of everything that can be inside of it. And I know that I can just go buy them if I want to. Um, So it takes some of the, the mystery and the mystique out of it as well. Um, I think my takeaway here in, you know, what I've seen, what I've heard you talk about the little bit I've seen of various cultures with, um, of other collectibles is that most of them are just not as good at returning your money as magic is. They're much more difficult logistically for the most part and not all of them in all ways, but I really haven't seen anything that's as easy to purchase store and ship as a magic card. Um, and so, you know, both of those factors matter a lot. Of course, I think the most important thing is you really have to enjoy it, right? Like I don't care about comic books. So getting into comic finance isn't probably isn't really worth it because like I don't want to sit and browse comic inventories and like check them out and be like, oh, this is cool. Or like I don't have the sense of, oh, this really gets my juices running. So I bet it's someone else is really excited about it. I can do that with magic cards. I can look at a magic card and go, this would be great in my each deck, which means other people are going to want it. Uh, I can't do that with shoes. I look at some of those, those uh, limited edition Nikes. I'm like, this is the ugliest thing that I have ever had in front of my face. Who would want this God awful thing? And then they're a thousand dollars. So, you know, really being emotionally into whatever it is, is probably the number one yeah. rule. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I just still haven't seen anything better than magic discounting for that factor. I think there's money to be made in almost all the segments. But again, it, it is it is rooted in your interests and your network. Um, so that's your first thing to consider. And also um, whether you've maxed your time in your primary hobbies. The my I guess my like final takeaway, if I had three segments to recommend people take a look at that, I think are hot um, Kickstarter projects. Um, the one caveat there is that you always end up waiting. So there's no, it's difficult to short flip 
because if you pre-sell a game that's supposed to get delivered in six months and they take two years, then you're wrecking yourself because you're going to get you, <laughs> you're going to have problems um, on the platform where you sold it. Um, but comics uh, is a very fertile ground. You have to know what you're doing. It takes a lot of research to get to the point where you can operate effectively. Um, but that market is bigger than magic. Um, and magic has a much greater chance of dying overall than anything like Spider-Man or Batman or any of these characters that are going on a hundred years and show no sign of slowing down. Um, and then video games is the biggest entertainment industry in the world. Um, it has crossover with, uh, a lot of the major brands, including magic and Marvel and DC and whatever. So, um, and it, as we move towards a virtual reality future, um, you know, the, the future of collectibles as physical objects is probably in question 50 years out, but for at least the next 10, maybe 20 years, it's still going to be a thing. And video game special editions uh, are very fertile ground if you get up to speed and pay attention. Well, that's that's kind of funny because, I mean, nearly all video game delivery is virtual at this point. Like how many people are buying physical copies of games? Well, like for instance, so, like uh, Breath of the Wild. Like you don't want to be buying like the Steelbook edition of some random game that got a 7.6. But if a game gets a 10 and there's a special edition out there with a Steelbook and a statue or something, you probably want to take a hard look at that. Like the Breath of the Wild spe- super special editions were doubled up and stayed there for months. Um, and we'll probably be triple or quadruple ups like in the long term because it's one of the greatest games of all time. And any game like Red Dead, Dead Redemption this month got a 10 on IGN. So I at least looked at the special edition version to consider like, do I think this is going to be a thing that people are going to be chasing? Um, and I think one of the I think one of the things that makes, you know, those two particular um, examples different is Zelda is a legacy brand and Red Dead Redemption is just a really fantastic game. Like one is about yeah. like tech is about craftsmanship and the other is about, you know, cross generational branding. Um, my mommy bought this for me when I was a baby. Sure. Like Pokemon's another one of those, right? Like Pokemon's resurgence with Pokemon Go was perfectly timed to coincide with my brother being in his mid late 20s, having a smartphone when he used to play Pokemon on his uh, Game Boy and play the card game when he was eight. And so when you have. Um, you hit the nostalgia button at exactly the right time. That's when you get a mega hit, and that's what sells special editions. <laughs> the ultra special edition of Red Dead Redemption comes with porcelain horse testicles. I would imagine. <laughs> no, porcelain wouldn't move in, in temperature. You'd have to come up with something that changes with the temperature. Yeah, if people haven't heard, the game is so expertly crafted that in when the horse goes up in the mountains and it gets cold, his his testicles shrink, which is. Imagine, it's just funny because there was a guy whose job for six there's a guy who like worked on that for six months and kept going back to his boss and the guy was like make them smaller <laughs> yeah it's what's what's amazing is like this wasn't something that like people found out they're like our game is so detailed it does this and everyone's like what why why did you feel the need to tell us this like it's just ah, it's fantastic I, I, another funny story in collectibles was kingdom death is this game that i've been playing for a while that i got in on the original kickstarter um and have bought most of the sets they have a lot of like uh anime hentai themed like spin-off pin-up projects um that make them a bunch of side money and so they have all these kind of like sexy figures that are really great 
to paint. You just got to decide what your comfort level's at. And yesterday they had their Halloween sale and I was busy working. So I just kind of like, I had my like little alarm that went off to say that their store had been restocked. So I pressed my little button that orders whatever I can order <laughs> and got some stuff and it checked out. And I just looked at it briefly and went, okay, cool. There's a Satan figure. That's neat. It's a sexy girl sitting on a pumpkin, whatever. Going to flip it on eBay, move along. Then I went back and looked at it later um, after I got back from the running the board game last night and realized that it's a 54 millimeter statue where she's sitting on a pumpkin full of dicks. Like literally <laughs> the pumpkin is full of hundreds of dicks. Out, out of the top of the pumpkin is like 60 dicks sticking out. <laughs> I was like, I'm not 100% sure how big the market's going to be for this product and how easily it will be to flip. <laughs> But it will I guess be we'll see. even bigger than it would but have I, been. I, I guess think. we'll see. Pumpkin full of dicks. It's gonna, that's what I'm going to go for uh, next year. It could be your uh, your online name when you buy the new Call of Duty. Yep. All right. We should wrap this up. Uh, so where can our listeners find you, James? As always, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. And I, again, am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I also write every Monday for MTG Price. I do the Watchtower series. If you want to ping me on Twitter and ask about beer, I will do my best to chat with you, although uh, you should know that I am... Uh, I enjoy it, but I am not a beer scientist, and you will find a lot more people... <clears throat> with much more knowledge than me. I just like stouts. I like motor oil. Fair. I like motor Fair. oil. <laughs> I had a butter tart beer the other day I really liked. Ooh, um, I had a pumpkin, no, marshmallow sweet potato beer. It was an ale. Was odd. Was odd. We, we, we're really not speaking to the Bud Light crowd at the moment. <laughs> I'd, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $4.99.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, which is probably the best part of the deal. Fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, which is pretty sweet as well. And a sweet set of online collection management tools that are mostly broken and will save you money once we fix them on mggprice.com <laughs> very honest this week uh all right well i enjoyed our show 142 here james uh and i look forward to doing it again next week thanks travis we'll see you all next week on another episode of mtg fast finance mm-hmm.